Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. And today we're speaking with the amazing illustrator and author, Tony DiTerlizzi. Hello, Tony. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I'm having like flashbacks looking at your um, this the series of stuff I did in the '80s. Yeah, because I'm also from Florida. Okay, and so even like the stores in the background and everything, and yes. like the Papazon chair in the yes. one illustration. I'm yes. like, oh, flashback, flashback. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we interviewed Meg Medina, and she's also from Florida. There are a lot of authors that we've and illustrators that we've interviewed that are from Florida. Yeah, it sounds like a hellscape. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes, just environmentally, sometimes you need that yeah. to aspire something to aspire towards like getting out of environmentally with the sink holes and the giant ants and the, yeah. you really get used to it though you no. do i love that it's it's the for me i mean i love growing up down there it is it is very hot it is hellishly hot um but there's giant insects a lot of retirees a lot of old people giant lizards but they were I'm, in fact one of my sticks when i do my shticks when i go to see the kids is i go I think the old people move to Florida and then just turn into lizards. <laughs> that thing on their neck just turns into like the dewlap. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I don't know. Like when you, when you, that's all you know, you're like, this is normal. Like I could never live there now, but it was fun growing up. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the backwoods of South Carolina. So I, a lot of people would think that was horrible, but like I used yeah. to spend hours in the woods by myself. Yeah. Which again, sounds horrifying to people. No, <laughs> but like to me, it was like this amazing place that I could just explore and figure out what things were and take stuff with me, you know, nicely. I didn't rip stuff out of the ground, but you know. Pine cones and yeah. stuff. No, I'm with the you. Rocks. I mean, I was a Boy yeah. Scout. And so before I was a Boy Scout, I was a nature lover. So I had a huge insect collection and we'd fish and snorkel and, you know, go out and the same thing. Go out. There'd always be like the one empty lot on your street that it was the woods and you'd go out there and catch lizards and stuff like that. So that was a great time. And and a very different time than it is now. I don't know how many kids are allowed to just go to the empty lot on the end of the street and go play until the street lights come on. But you know that was the seventies. We used to catch alligators. Yeah, oh, baby yeah. alligators. Yeah, yeah. 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 Black racers. Yeah. Yeah. Alligators. Oh yeah. yeah. They're yeah. just around. There was like a retention pond behind our neighborhood, and my brother and his friends would go fishing for them. And like the contest was to like catch the biggest one that you could to win the contest but not so big that it would break the line. Yeah. They kind of chirp. They make like a chirping yeah. sound. Yeah. You know. Oh, my God. <laughs> keeps getting more and more horrifying the more I learn. You're like, so much about Florida is making sense now. Good times. Good we times. call alligators <laughs> oh my God. and snakes and old people. Let me see if I had a question about books. <laughs> <laughs> Your early interest in bugs, yes, that seems to have carried through to the rest of your life and into your career. Yeah, um, do you feel like that inf- that helped you start noticing the details and the differences? Um, just having close that close uh, it, collection. That's interesting, but I, I never thought of it that way. But yes, I mean, there, I loved as a kid. I just loved tiny things. Like I had those little. You get them at like a Hallmark store, a dime store, just little ceramic animals or little glass animals. Like I had a little collection of those. I loved those. And a lot of toys in the 70s were small. Star Wars action figures were small. A lot of the adventure people. There was a lot of toys that were small and had tiny things. And so I think the idea of insects 
these these tiny animals that lived in their own world like that i think probably when i think about it now there's probably a correlation in feeling like a small insignificant kid in the world and seeing yourself in those things but as an artist Absolutely. Like I, I saw so much inspiration in the tiniest detail. So I would, I had magnifying glasses and things like that, that I would look at them and stuff. And, and it was just fascinating. It looked like alien stuff to me. And it was just incredibly inspiring. Well, I was reading um, a little bit about your background and obviously you've always been obsessed with like D and D and comics and fantasy and stuff like that. But when you went to college, did you, was that always your goal to be focused on that in your illustration? I know a lot of people sort of fall into one genre or another for different reasons, but it sounds like that was like your aim the whole time. My aim was always children's books. So, I mean, I came when I was in, I could always draw. I think we had to rewind. So in, in elementary school, middle school, I drew all kind. I drew all the stuff that, that kids back then would have drawn. Star Wars, dinosaurs, bugs, all that kind of stuff. By the time I got to high school, and I just went to public schools down in Florida. By the time I got to high school, there were other kids that drew and I wasn't discouraged, but I wasn't necessarily encouraged. Like, you know, it was kind of like, what are you going to do, you know, with this art that you can do? Because just because you can draw, there's so many facets that that can manifest into, even if you can figure out a way to make a living at it, right? So I was, I had taken all the art classes my school offered. And in my senior year, my senior art teacher, Tom Wetzel, he had a planning period which I had no idea what teachers do during planning period. I think then they probably went and had a cigarette or cried quietly. I was in the say corner. Drink? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I think it was great. He graded papers. And he he talked to the guidance counselor and he said, I want to do a special one-on-one class with Tony during my planning period. So he knew that I came from a middle income family. I was the oldest of three kids. There was no way my parents were going to be able to afford to put me through any kind of art school. So he said, I want you to focus on one project, a singular project that we're going to take the entire semester to do. And this project will be um, not only a star piece in your portfolio to try to get you into good art school, but maybe you can get some, a grant or scholarship with it. So it's going to be a really special piece in your portfolio. So the first week I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, like, I mean, like, what do you want me to draw? Like, and he's like, you need to figure it out. So I kind of dilly dallied for the first week or so. I went home on a Friday and my younger brother was reading, um, they were reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland for, in class. And um, he, he had problem with part of the book. So I read part of the book and we were kind of discussing it. And we were looking at the Sir John Tenniel's illustrations. And my brother said something to the effect of like, these illustrations are so old timey. I wish there was new illustrations. And I went, yeah, that I'd love to draw that. So I went back into school the next day or Monday and I said, what if I did a version of like Alice in Wonderland and my, and Mr. Wetzel said, I think that's, that's a good idea. And I think, but he goes, I want you to redesign all the characters and then I want you to do all the illustrations and hand them in by the end of the semester. And that's what I did. And by the time I was done, I knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And the, the kicker is though, you're talking to a person who desperately wanted to be popular, desperately wanted to be accepted. And this is a school in South Florida. So it was the cool kids were surfers. They were skateboarders. They were jocks. You know, being a nerd was a pariah back then. You were not, it was not the landscape that we are, we find kids in now, which is great. But a kid, a kid who played Dungeons and Dragons or loved Star Wars, like that stuff, you were supposed to have left back in elementary school, not even middle school. And so 
the idea of being a kid who's like, I love Alice in Wonderland and I want to do drawings of Alice in Wonderland. The girls were not going to line up. You're making a sad, pitiful face because you know, like, oh, bless his little well, children's book heart. I was that type of kid in a right, lot of so ways. So you know. So, yeah. so here's the thing. So I do the drawings. Now I'm inspired by uh, anime. My brother was a big anime fan. So we did Alice inspired by Lynn Minmay, who was a character in the Robotech series from way back when. Elton John had just had a huge comeback in the 80s with I'm Still Standing. So we made the Mad Hatter Elton John because he sings. You know, we did all this. We kind of played around. The, the, the caterpillar was like a Muppet looking kind of, hey man, kind of caterpillar from like the electric mayhem from the Muppet show. And I did all these illustrations. And my bedroom at the time was coated in posters and had lava lamps and flicker lights and black lights. And I'd put on my Pink Floyd albums, shut all the lights off, and there I went. So I took a highlighter and I colored the drawings with the highlighter as well as what they were colored in. And so if you looked at it one way, you're like, oh, these are nice, colorful illustrations. But then if you click the black light on, parts of it glowed. That's amazing. So my dad took the black light, uh, got me a black light and put it in like a pen light, like a little hand. So when I handed the book in at the end of the semester, I handed the book in to Mr. Wetzel and then I hand him this black light, right? And he's like, you know, A plus, 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 right? It's like, it's totally like plus, plus, plus. So then I'm in class, in another class later. And this kid's like, hey, Dieter Lizzie, I heard you got some book with glows in the dark. Can I see it? <laughs> and this is probably someone who would never talk to me. Hand him the book, hand him the black light, and there'd be this crowd of people looking at it. So I got this validation for being 100% authentic. It is like a John Hughes movie. It's kind of crazy, but it, I needed it so bad right at that point in my life. It's probably 16 years old, and that's it. So it's a long-winded answer, but I think it's, an, it's, a, it's a story when I think the older I get, the more you start to realize how pivotal stuff like that in your life is. And so I love Dungeons and Dragons. I played Dungeons and Dragons when it first came out in the 80s. I worked for TSR, the company that published D&D, all through the 90s out of art school while I was submitting my manuscripts and stuff to try to break into children's publishing. I did wonder how you ended up doing the D&D um, art as a job. Like, I know that obviously it's something that you loved, but how did you end up working for them? I graduated... Um, uh, the Art Institute down in Fort Lauderdale in 1992. And I did, I had, I, my portfolio primarily consisted of children's book submissions, which were completely off base because there, there was an illustration program there, but it wasn't totally out of touch with what was going on in children's book. There was no SCBWI. There was nothing like there is now. You, you really needed to live in New York City and drop your portfolio off. It was also full of editorial illustration. In the early 90s, there was still Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, but there was a lot of magazines, Esquire, that would have had loads of caricature and editorial illustration in them. And I couldn't get work in either of them. And so I moved back home. I couldn't get work. And I reconnected with a bunch of old childhood friends. And one night we were, we were sitting, hanging out at a bar and we started, remember this? Remember that? Remember when we used to do this? And someone's like, you remember Dungeons and Dragons? Oh yeah. And one person's like, I got the, what this book. And one person's like, I got this adventure. And the following Friday, we're all at somebody's house rolling up characters and getting ready. So the story was I had the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Player's Handbook, but I was missing the Monster Manual. So I went to the uh, Walden Books, gives you an idea how long ago this was, <laughs> to go get a new copy. And it had changed. They had up, updated the books. And the art just wasn't up to snuff from the 70s, which was odd. It had seemed like it had taken a downward turn 
And so all my friends are looking at the books and are like, Tony, you could do art for these guys. I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm not good enough. And I, I sent a package of stuff over the summer. And I got rejected over and over again, but somehow, but they kept writing me back. I kept corresponding with the art director and it was the most communication I'd had with any of the art directors I'd sent stuff to. And by the end of the year, I was working for them. Yeah. And it changed everything. I mean, Spiderwick wouldn't exist. The, the Wandla trilogy wouldn't exist if it wasn't for my work on Dungeons and Dragons. It taught me how to build worlds. So I'm very curious, um, you're talking about building a world. You often build a world on one card. Yeah. How did you get involved with that? The funny thing about Magic the Gathering, I had worked for Dungeons & Dragons for a couple of years at that point. They have a huge convention they do. And then it was in Milwaukee. Now it's in Indianapolis called Gen Con, which is a big gaming convention. And I remember going there. And at the time, Dungeons & Dragons was popular, but it was waning behind a game company actually uh, near here in Georgia called White Wolf Games. And they did these gothy games like Vampire and <laughs> I Werewolf. I interned for them in college. Did you really? So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like they scanned my hair as a background for some of the vampire cards. <laughs> Amazing. Is this, is this vampire where you do it all over the city and you'll stand like... like no, that's somewhere? live action yeah. role-playing, okay. a.k.a. LARPing. LARPing. Yeah, this LARPing. was just just like D&D, but okay. essentially a tabletop role-playing yeah. game of... Your hair's in a vampire card. Gothy 90, you know. <laughs> Which fit me perfectly then. Awesome. Yes. So, th- like, they would show up at Gen Con. Their booth was like a hearse. Like, they were that cool. They all wore trench coats and smoked cigarettes and wore sunglasses. And we were literally, like, the D&D nerds wearing, like, puffy shirts and vests and, you know. Anyway, uh, a man comes up to my booth who was wearing a puffy shirt and, and had long hair. And he said he was the art director for some new card game called Magic. And he's like, we don't have a lot of money to pay you. We could pay you in royalties or whatever. And no one was taking the work because everyone's like, why would I want to work for that? I'm getting paid big bucks here. (laughs) And he handed me a bunch of the cards, so the early cards. And I brought them home to my D&D group and we tried them. We were like, nah, it's not our thing. And they were probably alpha deck. I mean, he probably, yeah. Were they Black Lotuses? I don't think the Black Lotus was in there, but you know, he handed me a couple decks of the cards. We went home and we tried it and it made my head hurt the way chess does. And so that's, it's a very strategic, strategery. It's a very, you know, you have to be very analytical and stuff. So it's very different type of the brain than I'd say Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons is kind of creative in a way. Magic is written to me is not that when I play it. I read on your website that the character design in that is, was inspired by your love of vintage horror movies. Mm -hmm. Do you have any favorite Oh, it was characters, favorite. Well, I mean, I grew up on the universal monsters, the classic stuff. I looked at a lot of Nosferatu, the original Nosferatu, when I did it. Artistically, though, it was Chaz Adams and Edward Gorey. I mean, those were the two big ones that were hugely influential on The Spider and the Fly. And, you know, and and then by extension, then the Munsters and the Adams family uh, television shows, and then the universal monsters. So that would be, you know, Phantom of the Opera, Frankenstein, Wolfman, etc. That's all the stuff I grew up on. But I, the, the, the trick with that was I wanted to spook kids, but I never wanted to scare or terrify them. And so I had to look at those kinds of visual, what's that visual language kind of look like? What do the characters look like? What does their world look like? So that I can ride that. That's a very narrow path that you kind of have to to ride and it's a little tricky you make them too realistic 
it, it gets super creepy real fast, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, we joked that it was like literally Silence of the Lamb with <laughs> bugs. Well, yeah, because you, you let the fly die in the end. I didn't let anybody do anything. <laughs> I didn't write that, okay? Just uh, just get that on your, well, don't I'm, cut that yeah, out of your sure, podcast. You're just along for the ride. I'm sure yeah. you had the option to change it. Why? How could I change Mary well, Howitt's poem? That's like, that's like, <laughs> you know, you, like, you didn't, you can't fuzzy bunny up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's my you point could, is that I admire the fact that you didn't try to like. Well, you know, it, so my editor at the time, Kevin Lewis, was at Simon Schuster. I did a bulk of my books, and he was the one who discovered me. We did Spiderwick with him uh, right after Spider and the Fly. He gave me my start, and he was a tremendous, uh, a tremendous. Uh, influence on my life. So Kevin had called me one day and he said, do you know the spider and the fly poem? And I said, will you walk into my parlor? That one? He goes, yes. I go, yeah, I know it. He goes, the whole poem. Doesn't she just go into his parlor? That's the poem, right? It's like (laughs) twinkle, twinkle, little star. We think we all know it, but that poem is like a hundred pages long too. So he goes, I'm going to fax you the poem because that's, you know, that's when that was. So the fax is coming out and I'm and it's upside down. And I'm kind of reading it and I'm reading it and I'm waiting for like something else to happen. And it just <laughs> ends and and I go, that's the end. He goes, that's the end. I go, that's it? That's it. You want to make this for kids? Yes, I think kids would love it. And originally he had wanted uh, Fred Marcelino to illustrate it. That's who they were they were hoping to get, but Fred fell ill and passed away. And so they it languished. They were kind of looking for another uh, artist to do it. So getting back to your Florida thing, I get a call from Kevin. And Kevin grew up in the, I think he grew up in South Carolina as well. Oh. And um, so Kevin calls me one day. He goes, I didn't know you draw bugs. <laughs> I go, dude, I grew up in Florida. It's nothing but bugs. I had done a cover to like Cricket Magazine with all these bugs, all these anthropomorphic insects. And he goes, you, I need to send you this, this manuscript. So I, you know, we did it. I, I, unlike many of my books, I drew the spider, the design for them in minutes. It like, it flashed in my head. That doesn't normally happen. It's usually I labor and torture myself for months, but I saw him as like the, the totally, <laughs> rubbing, you know, twirling his mustache and uh, why he ties the fly to the railroad tracks. And I immediately saw her as Clara Bow, like from this old 1920s kind of flapper thing. And, and at the time, there were movies that had been made for families and children about bugs. So there was the movie called Ants and then Pixar had done Bugs Life. So I knew what I didn't want it to look like. I thought those were kind of corny and a little too cartoony, despite this. I liked the stories. They were fine, but I didn't like the visual presentation. I wanted to do something a little more not just darker, but I, I thought a little more, there was more complex. Mm-hmm. Well, and the ants, the designs in ants. Yeah, they're creepy. They have cheekbones. Yeah, it was weird. Ants don't have cheekbones. Yeah, it was strange. They don't have skulls. Yeah. Was, <laughs> so, that, you know, with Spider and the Fly, we did the book. I did the dummy. The dummy was for them fairly close to the final book. There was a couple changes in the, the parlor. We couldn't quite get the parlor do we show the parlor? Do we never show the parlor? And then and, and you're like, as a kid, I'd want to see, like, what, what's in the parlor? And then you're like, oh, my God, it's heads and everything. Like, it's bad. It's bad. And um, so some of the adults at Simon & Schuster, some of the people who worked were like, you can't publish this. Like, one of the high ups was like, you need another illustration where they're literally taking a bow like they're on a stage. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. Like, why are we even publishing it? That you completely undercut all the the 
the energy of the of the poem, all the drama of it, you know. And we stuck to our guns, but we really genuinely felt no one is going to buy this book. Like, just thought, who in their right mind? And look what happened. And look what happened. Caldecott. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, New York Times first was, it was my first New York Times bestseller at a time when there were not as many, there was literally two children's lists, fiction and nonfiction. So it, it got in the ring with Harry Potter and, I mean, it hiccuped. It was in and off in like a couple of weeks, but we did, I mean, the fact that it even made it on there at that time was a huge, tremendous success. Yeah, it really was. It was incredible. And Spiderwick wouldn't have happened because th th that success opens the door for like, what do you want to do? <laughs> Mr. Spider-Man, like what, what do you got next? And more spiders. More spiders, more creepy stuff. Well, speaking of Spiderwick, how did you end up choosing Holly Black? I mean, she's obviously the most perfect person in the whole world to, <laughs> to co-write that with, but how... I, the fact that she was a journalist who interviewed you previously... For Dungeons & Dragons. ...is the most, like... that. It sounds made up because it's too perfect. It's crazy. It's crazy when I think back on it. You know, I don't... Th and I don't think back on it too often, but, yeah, I mean, we had moved to New York so that I could try to break into children's publishing. I made the rounds for about a year, started meeting people, and there was a magazine... It was a subculture magazine at that point because D&D wasn't popular. And Holly was a reporter and she came out to interview me and we hit it off terrifically. She was in school to become a librarian. And, uh, and, it, and she, it was immediate when, when our friendship got to a level where I felt comfortable showing her stuff as I was working on it and the feedback she was giving me, it was immediately apparent how brilliant she was with not just with words, but with story, with every her her ability to kind of step out and look at it objectively was uncanny. And her ability to read. I've never I'd never seen someone who could read that as fast as she could. So I had Kevin had just given me Lori Hall Sanderson's uh, fever. And I'm not one for historic fiction. I guess it's historic fiction. I don't think it's I mean it's based on yeah. fact, but I think it's faction kind of thing. And but I love the cover with the so I read it and I, and I loved it. And I'd read Lori's, I mean, the Red Speak and stuff. So I was telling Holly all about it. It was a Friday night. We literally had ordered pizza and we were going to watch a movie. Like literally, like, like we're going to watch Spaceballs. Holly's sitting on the couch while we're watching this movie. I see her flipping through it. The movie's over. She's like, it was a good book. You didn't read that. Yeah, I did. No, you didn't. Yeah, I'm done. It was good. It was really good. I like it. I like it. <laughs> so then I start quizzing her. And of course, she, she'd read it. She just, when we would tour on Spiderwick, she would have the tote bag filled with books and they'd be done by the end of the, of the airplane flight. I've never seen that. She devours books. That's part of her magic that she can do. So I originally, for years, I had been developing this field guide of fairies and trolls that was inspired by Dungeons and Dragons and Brian Froud and Alan Lee's fairies books from the 70s and and my love of field guides from when I was a kid in Florida catching bugs and snakes and lizards and wanting to know what they were and I loved that natural history speak I loved words like indigenous nocturnal <laughs> diurnal you, you know I like I loved that that kind of language I was talking to some teachers about it today they were talking about boys at like second or third grade slipping out of reading 
and what to, and what books would appeal to them and not. And I said, I slipped into nonfiction during that. That's when I started reading all my dinosaur books, sharks, deep sea fish, bugs, you know, uh, cryptids, which would, it would have been just Sasquatch. And they said, yeah, it's true. It's, it's interesting that, that there's that shift and it can go in a couple directions after that. But the, the trick, of course, is just to keep them reading and what things can we keep putting under their nose to kind of keep them going. And so I think I had a rich history of, of reading all those types of books. So th I had talked to uh, Kevin about it and I had put together a presentation and Holly had helped me with the folklore. She understood the folklore. She knew the folklore. She had had very we had very similar upbringings. She loved Dungeons and Dragons and Brian Froud just as much as I did. And she's like, I've got a loads of books on European and Celtic folklore. That's gonna. This is primarily what you're drawing from. I can help you do the research. So I put together a presentation. Took it to Simon and Schuster, and I talked to Kevin about it. And he's like, I like it. Tell me more about the guy who made the book. So I'd be like, well, you know, he can see fairies and no one else can see the fairies. Only he can see the fairies. So everyone thinks he's crazy. They think he's crazy, but he thinks he's Darwin. Like he's going to have the next big. So we'd kind of flesh out this little bit of story over lunch of like who the, the Arthur Spiderwick was. And it reached an apex. I'll st I still remember this from Brooklyn. Kevin took me out to dinner with my wife, Angela. We went to a Mexican restaurant. He gave me a lot of alcohol and then said, I don't think we're going to be able to make your, your field guide because I just, it's, it, it's really expensive, the book you want to do, because I had gatefolds and, and I don't think anyone's going to want a field guide to trolls and fairies and goblins. Okay, okay. There's nothing else we could do. Now, bear in mind, literally a year later, Dragonology comes out. That's, so, that's how close... We were both on the collective subconscious there where we were both there. Yeah, I don't know the author, but we were thinking about the same kind of stuff. And he said, but I do like the story about the field guide. Maybe we write a book about the field guide. So then that led to more meetings of like writing these things. And, and the, from a hot minute, it was two books. And then it was like one novel about Arthur Spiderwick with just plates kind of interspersed. And then at a certain point, and I don't remember who said it, Kevin, Holly, Angela, my wife, no one wants to read about a hundred-year-old dude. Like no kid is going to be interested <laughs> in this guy. And, and then it was like, we need to make it modern-day kids. And, and Holly's the one who's like, we need to make it modern-day kids who find the field guide. And so it, it was very organic how she was slowly becoming more and more part of it. But the interesting thing was... Holly wasn't published at that point. Only Angela and I knew the brilliance of Holly. So she had finished this manuscript for her for this YA book. Again, YA was Wheatsy Bat at the time. She would tell, go on and on about YA. And I'm like, I don't even know. Like, are you talking about like, go ask Alice? Like, are those, what <laughs> books are you talking about? I don't even understand what you mean. And she's like, no, it's, it's a whole genre and I'm like, I, I can't even see what she's talking about. I'm telling you, she really could see it. And she like gave me Wheatsy Bat and I read it and I'm like, I get it. But like, you, you think like, you know, kids will put down their headphones and want to <laughs> read this kind of stuff, <laughs> teenagers. And so she wrote this novel. Angela, I was away on book tour or something. I had traveling and I wasn't home. Angela calls me and says, I read Holly's novel. We have to help her get it published. And I said, okay. And she, and that's always a little tricky to do 
when you really go out on a limb and you've you've established these contacts at a at a big publishing house, you this is this person's good. They're on the money. Da 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 da. You're not going to regret it. But we did it for Holly and Kevin read it and said it's amazing. I don't think it's the book for me. It kind of made the rounds at Simon Schuster and came back in his lap and said, I, I, Angela said, you will regret not publishing her. And it was Tithe. It was her first book. So when, at, while that's going on in the background, Spiderwick is slowly coming to a, a boil and we're starting to figure out what it is. And Spider and the Flies now come out and Spider and the Flies now get on the times list and there's talk of a cow. Like this is all happening in like six months like less than a year. It's all coming to a boil that fast. And at a certain point, Kevin and I sit down and we map out, okay, we don't want to do a big novel because we'll be in, we'll be competing with Harry Potter. We'll be competing even with like Lemony Snicket. We'll be competing with a lot of big, but we don't want to do that. We want to do literally like goosebumps or like magic treehouse. Like we want to go the other way, go younger. And um, he goes, okay, so I'm, I want you to do five books. I want you to write and illustrate them. And then we're going to do the field guide after. If they sell well, you can do your field guide. I'm like, I can't do all that. Can't do all that. It's too much. And so they started talking about authors. Well, what if we get this person? What if we get a ghostwriter? What if we get... And was like, I just want Holly. And off we went. Can you tell us about your Caldecott call experience? And about the ceremony. Oh my gosh. My God, it's almost, it was over 10 years ago. Um, so I, I, I'll go on the record for this. I don't know how many other people have or have not. When we were on the road for the Spider and the Fly, we would get librarians and teachers, they would tell you, you're going to win. You're going to win. That sucks. You don't want to hear that. You do and you don't, right? Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. But it's also dangerous because you have to block that kind of talk out. You cannot, it's, it's really difficult to do because your ego wants that. Your ego wants to think everything I make deserves a shiny sticker on it. But then the truth is, is no, it doesn't. <laughs> and <laughs> And also, if you don't get it, it can be crushing, right? Well, also, I feel like it forces you into the position of those people at the award shows who, like, the cameras are aimed at them and yes. they have to do the, like, I'm disappointed face. Hey, I'm so face. happy for you. Yeah. So we, knew, we had heard buzz about it for Spider and the Fly when we were on the road. People were telling us. And I just was, I tried my best to keep it at, at arm's length. And sure, and I, Angela was... Like, I got a feeling I feel really good about it. And I'm like, stop saying that. I don't want to know. And I remember laying in bed and the phone rang and Angela, I mean, I was like, eh, I'm like a bear. I have to get like eight hours of sleep minimum. I like, I'm just like, my brain is going so much all the time that when I hit the sack, I'm out. So they called early in the morning and Angela literally just jumped up and goes, that's the Caldecott. Like she knew. And I'm like, it's going to be like your mom or something, you know, whatever. <laughs> and it was them. And it was amazing. And they're all screaming. And, it, and it's surreal. And, and you don't feel anything. And I called Kevin. He was happy. And I called my mom. And that's when it hit. And I started crying when I talked to my mom. To see, like, because she knew 
where I'd, what I'd, where I'd come from, how, how, how far I'd gone to be, you know, a kid who likes to draw in a little beach town in Florida, a nerdy kid, you know, chasing your dreams, moving to New York City, trying, you know, making the, all the things, all the, the journey that, and it's different for everyone. Everyone has a different journey. And to be acknowledged in that way was profound. I don't remember much of the night, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I, I remember Eric Roman won the gold for that night. And what was interesting, the only takeaway I remember that Eric told me, which I've heard more than once from other artists who have won, was he was about ready to quit the business. He, uh, and he, I love Eric's books. Like Cinderide Cats is one of my favorites. It's a beautiful book. It sat on my shelf for years. I can't tell you how many meetings I brought that book in. Can we do a cover like that? Like, I loved his books. And my friend Rabbit was a totally departure from his normal style. But he was like, I, I have to do something completely different because I'm about ready to throw in the towel. And so he, it was good that he, he got that acknowledgement. He needed it. I didn't need it that way. Not to that level. I needed a nudge, like, you're doing the right thing, kid, keep going. If the universe is doing the, if you believe in that, that the universe is doing that for you. But he needed it in another way. And that's kind of how I feel every time that the awards, I have a lot of friends that have won awards now. I'm happy for them. It does put undue pressure on you. Bear in mind, I went from that, knocking it out of the ballpark with Spiderfly to just selling millions of books with Holly for Spiderwick. That put you in a precarious place moving forward. You start to think, everything I do is going to sell millions of copies. And that's not the way it works. And, you know, Moise Sendak would tell you that. Eric Carl would tell you that. They, they, they go up and down. Mo Willems would tell you that, you know? Not everything is, is, is a bestseller and an award winner. Well, I think you, I think you handle fame well. <laughs> I, I have to say, I was uh, reading some of your frequently asked questions on your website. Okay. And you were telling the story about how Holland Oates signed the drawing that you met. I don't know if you've heard the story. So he drew a picture of Holland Oates. Okay. Because he, of course I did. And he mailed it to them yes. with two, two copies. One for, for them, them to keep. Yes. And one, would you please sign and send back? And they actually did it. Yes. And it was the first thing that he did that with, and like it made this huge impact. And I was just yes. thinking, like, also in your frequently asked questions, because I, I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> you have a, such a, a a welcoming policy about autographs. Like, yeah. you want this signed, just send it to me. Sure. Yeah. Like, is that where that came from? Because most authors are not like that. Yeah. No. I. I. I don't. Not to disparage anybody else, but like you no, know, you guys no, are I mean, really busy and we're busy and we, we yeah we sign stuff all the time. I don't I don't care about that. That's fine and and I don't want I I've often gently told parents because you sign a book or you do a drawing in it for a kid and they're like oh this one's going on the show. I'm like no, that's the last thing I want you to do. Just send me another one. If they beat it up, that's what you hope for. That it's been loved to death. The funny thing is, as you're telling me the Hall and Oates story back, is is it encapsulates kind of the arrogance of an of being an artist, which is the thing I've created is so good that not only will other people like it, they will like it so much they will sign it and send it back to me. But it was true. <laughs> it's kind of part of it. You kind of have to own that when you're making, you have to be like, I am so good at telling stories and drawing pictures for the next generation that I should be paid to do that. 
You know, that's kind of that weird arrogance that comes with it. And you kind of have to just own it. And, and it's part of it. And, and that was, again, very pivotal. I was 15 years old when I did those drawings. I did a drawing a day over a summer break vacation, and I drew all my favorite pop musicians, uh, Hall & Oates among them. It was, the, I, was, it was, I was probably 1984. If I was 15, it was probably 1983, 84. So I drew, you know, Hall & Oates, Van Halen, Huey Lewis in the News. I love Huey Lewis in the News. Cindy Lauper. <laughs> and I sent a bunch of them out to these people, and they sent them back. So I got them, I got Holland Oates wrote me back. Well, they signed it. Uh, Cindy Lauper signed it. Uh, Elton John signed it. What? But Billy Joel wrote me a note. I still have it to this day and said, I think you have a great future in illustration. Like. That's amazing. Go Billy Joel. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty amazing. It was amazing. Like, that. I suppose as it is now, it would be, that for me would be, you know, like Ed Sheeran or Drake or uh, Lady Gaga writing you back and saying, I see you. I think you have potential. Follow your dream. That's the equivalent of that. I wonder if somewhere in his house he had like this this drawing that you did. Stacks of that. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine. I get, those, those celebrities must get truckloads of stuff. I can't imagine the volume of stuff that comes into their houses. That's true. Or their offices. I asked this question of Holly Black. I feel like you're also an appropriate person to ask this of. Do you consider a gnome a fairy? (laughs) Ah, Traditionally, gnomes were part of the four elements. So you had the sylph, salamander, no, it's, al- it's you alchemy. You and give the exact same answer. It's alchemy. No, but that's that's what, fo- according to folklore, that's what they are. They're they're part of. They're like part of. The, they're part of an element used for alchemy. They're like the spirit of it. But the problem also, this is what happens with fairy, and also, is those names are so slippery when you move from region to region. So a troll can be a gnome, can be a dwarf, can be an elf, can be a, like they. Sometimes they can all be a synonym for one another, depending on what region you're in, which is part of the folly of Arthur Spiderwick is he tried to apply a taxonomy to him, to a thing that cannot have a taxonomy applied to it. That's kind of his folly. Like, I'm going to treat it like, you know, scientifically, and they can't because they're shape-shifting and morphing and region to region. So I, I, to answer that question, I actually have to answer what do I think a fairy is in a way. And I think... And I, I needed to really think about this when we worked on Spider because everything I try to do, I want it to be genuine. I want it to come from a real place. I don't want there to be artifice. I don't want to play into trends or anything like that. And, and obviously, I had a huge love for the fan, fantastic and, and fairy and folklore, as did Holly. My takeaway was there are, there's energy that we don't understand as humans because we're limited only by the senses that we have. And I, my feeling is that at one point when we were more harmonious with nature, we could sense stuff that we no longer can see. And that's what I lived with. That's, that's how I feel about that stuff. And I think that I think there's probably some stuff that could be explained away through science. You know, the griffin, they think, was probably the skeleton of protoceratops or some kind of ceratopsian found in the desert, which would make total sense. 
But the thing is, is the more you learn about natural history, the more you realize how utterly fantastic and unbelievable that stuff is. So for like one of my favorite ones was why were there no, why were there no male mermaids, marrows? Most of the folklore focuses on females. And when you look in the old art and the old bestiaries, you'd, you'd see a king, like a tritony guy, or you'd see a weird pope, and they'd have the double... There was always like a sea version of a land thing. But primarily when you think of a siren or a mermaid, you think of a girl with fishtail. And I don't remember the word now off the top of my head. It's a scientific word, but it's, it's fish do it, frogs do it, maybe some reptiles do it, but if there's no... Um, if, it, if it's a population of all one gender, one of them will flip genders so that it can... Like in Jurassic Park. Yes, like in Jurassic Park. Nature finds nature a way. <laughs> nature, nature found a way. And for mermaids, nature found a way. And so I loved that, like, you... The real world was just as amazing and fantastic. Thank you very much for answering my gnome question. Gnomes are a personal interest of mine, and I get very into their origins and kind of where they can be found and the different places they show up in different folklores. So thank you. Really? So was that an adequate answer or not? Yes. Okay. I'm just kind of collecting and gathering different gnome Gnome effects? Gnome effects? <laughs> gnome is, no, there was a it. long discussion of whether gnomes should be in the Spiderwick Field Guide because we had salamander. So, you know, I was like, well, then why don't we just do sylph gnome and Nixie? Di Ni I don't remember what the water one is. I'm embarrassed to say. Naiads are the spirits the of Greek. rivers, but Nixies That's... are like the pixie-ish, right? I can't believe I, I'm not remembering this. It's Anyway, there's a water one, and I don't remember what the water one is. They, yeah, it's like a Nixie or a Naiad or whatever. There's some water version of it. And we decided not to, but somehow Salamander made it in. Because they're cool. Because <laughs> it was I think it was literally Holly's like, but listen, we can't cut that one. I mean, look at your drawing. It's kind of cool looking. <laughs> the kid poking it with the poker in the fireplace. Um, and Arthur uh, Spiderwick is named after an illustrator. Is that right? Arthur Rackham? Arthur Rackham, yeah. The, the, he was such a tremendous influence on me. And it's interesting, the parallel here. So I, we didn't mention this on the Spider and the Fly, but I mean, obviously I looked at Tim Burton for the Spider and the Fly. And but I thought, well, Tim Burton's alive and well and making things. So I don't want to... I'm inspired by him, but I don't want to be derivative of him. So who was Tim Burton looking at? And it, you know, Chaz Adams, where you can start to see the DNA of who Tim Burton's looking at. And the same can be said for, for Brian Froud. I mean, he was obviously looking at Arthur Rackham. He was looking at John Bauer. He was looking at, I'm sure, like Hieronymus Bosch and some of the more fantastic stuff. So the Rackham I discovered in college and, and, you know, just like so many other people, he had such an incredibly profound effect on me as an artist and a storyteller. And... There was at one point, Holly and I tried to make it. There was a period in Rackham's life after his wife passes away where he kind of, they don't, he disappeared. He probably just went up to the country to mourn for a couple months. And we thought, why don't we make this when he makes the field guide? We thought about that and we talked about that, but it felt weird. It felt weird. He was a real person. His daughter was still alive at that time. She would have been quite elderly. I mean, we could have reached out to her and coordinated, but it just felt easier to just make him a fictitious character that was so clearly inspired by Rackham. And then I dedicated the books to Rackham. So it was, there was no, you know, secrets there. What are your favorite Newbery books? I would say we mentioned Kate Camillo. obviously. I love those books. I'm a big fan of Adam Gidwitz. Obviously, Holly. Ah, I've got one for you. 
I've got one for you. It took, <laughs> I just, it took a second. And I just, okay, I, I'll do a quick, a, a short version of a long-winded answer. When we would go on tour for Spiderwick, we'd have to list who our heroes were and stuff like this. And Holly would go on and on about Lloyd Alexander, Lloyd Alexander, <laughs> Lloyd Alexander. And she's like, Tony, you really need to read those books. Okay, fine, whatever. Then I did a Star Wars book about five, six years ago and got, I spent a lot of time with Tom Engelberger, who I love. I adore him to death. What? You never read Lloyd Alexander? You need to read Lloyd. I don't even, I don't even know you. You need to be reading <laughs> Lloyd Alexander. So I finally order the, the first book which is not The Black Cauldron, it's The Book of Three. It's The Book of Three. And I'm like, oh my, I immediately order the rest of the books and tear through all the Prudain. And I loved, loved them. And I just reread them all with my daughter, Sophia. So that is one of my favorite, Newberry. So it's the... Black Cauldron? Did The Black Cauldron uh, win it? Or is it the King? King? The High King might have won it? It's the High King. Taron Wanderer. Yeah, Lloyd of Castle Lear. The High King. When there's a series and one of them wins, I always get them mixed up with each yeah. other, which one won. But yeah. there you go. That's, there's a, how's that for digging deep? Very good. And then what are you currently working on? Oh, what am I currently working on? I am currently working on the sequel to Kenny and the Dragon. Oh, cool. Yes. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> it was thought of right after Kenny and the Dragon was written. I had this idea of what I thought I could do for a second book. And then, you know, Spiderwick kept, kept, just kept me busy. And then I went on to do other things. And I needed to get the Wandla books kind of out of my system. And then I, I kind of came back around to it. And, and Simon and & Schuster said, we'd really love for you to, to do that sequel. So I'm finally doing it. I love Kenny so much. <laughs> That's a, I mean, I got, if I could leave you with anything, the books I thought would do okay did phenomenal. And that's one of them. Like that book, we were just, all we wanted to do was, it was so ambiguous how Holly and I worked on Spiderwick that so often we'd show up at a thing and go, Holly, you wrote all these books and Tony, you did nice pictures. And I'm like, uh, no, I helped, you know, there's a whole thing. And, 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 I, and I get it because Holly was probably a writer at that point. And so I wanted, I think, to just write something to show that I could write. And so I, we did, and, and the original Kenny and the Dragon, I had presented it to Kevin and said, I love the reluctant dragon so much because that dragon is so unlike the dragons I grew up with. It's not smog. It's not the dragon in Dragon Slayer. It's not the dragon in uh, Dungeons and Dungeons. Dragons and Dungeons and Dragons are primarily evil. You know, it's not the dragons in Dragon's Lair that you have to defeat. You know, they were all pretty much traditionally smog, derivatives of smog. The, you have the European dragon and the Eastern, you know, style dragon. They were all primarily European, evil, malicious dragons. And I, I, and I loved that story so much. And Kevin just said, I'm worried that modern kids are not going to enjoy... Kenneth Graham, the way Kenneth Graham's right. I don't know if it's going to appeal to them. Because all I wanted to do, originally all I wanted to do was I wanted to write an introduction, maybe put a little watercolor on Ernest Shepherds to give it some color, some, some thing, and that'd be it. And just repackage it. And he's like, I think you need to re-illustrate it. And I'm like, that's Ernest Shepherd. I don't know if I'm the guy. And then he's like, yeah, just, get, just do a couple sketches. And then I'm like, oh, that's just, you know, maybe I could. Yeah, Ernest too? And then he was like, I, he read it and he said, I think you could, you should retell it. And I'm like, I, I don't know. And so the caveat was, if I do all that, it has to be loaded with homages to the original. There's no secret of who it's, who it's an homage to. 
So yeah, I've I've had a plot that I've that I've that's been sitting in my drawer for for ten years, waiting to be done. So excited. So that's, <laughs> that's where I am exciting. with that. Yeah. Dear listeners, I am sitting here doing a happy dance in place because I'm so excited. It's a very happy wiggle. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's... Again, we are Newberry Tart here talking with Tony DiTolizzi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. It's a great time. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com. <laughs>